Welcome to This Wild Life, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from around the world. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. everyone I just wanted to say before we start the next episode with our fabulous guest we are launching a brand new competition and that is to win a trail camera entering is really really easy and all details about how to enter will be at the end of this episode good luck hi everyone I'm Amy Turner and welcome to this wildlife podcast Now, today I have the complete privilege of introducing Dr. Amy Dickman onto the show. It's safe to say Amy is a world leader in conservation biology, and she is a senior research fellow at Oxford University. Amy specialises in conserving threatened wildlife populations on human-dominated land and looks to resolve human-wildlife conflict. She founded the incredible Ruaha Carnival Project in Tanzania and today we will be finding out all about Amy's background, why Ruaha in Tanzania is so ecologically significant and why the carnival populations are rapidly diminishing. As well as talking about the animals, we will also be talking about the role of communities in conservation and how the Ruaha Carnival Project makes wildlife relevant to the local people. Now, lastly, because Amy is so unbelievably qualified, I think we will take this opportunity to touch on some topics that are often quite misunderstood, especially for us in the UK and in Europe. Um... To be honest, we're we're often quite far removed from the truth. So we will be touching on topics such as hunting concessions. So so keep listening because uh, it's a very, very interesting topic. Anyway, with all of that said, Amy, it's absolutely fantastic to have you join us today. And and thank you so much for your time. It's a huge pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Now, I gather you're not in Tanzania either at the moment. Where, Where are you calling us from? I am not. At the moment, I am sheltering under my daughter's bunk bed in Islip, outside Oxfordshire, (laughs) (laughs) trying to hide away from my children during lockdown. (laughs) Well, before we dive into the Ruaha Carnival project, I'd be keen to learn a bit about your background. You know, it's not every day that we talk to world leading scientists on African carnivores. So if you could, perhaps you could give us an insight into how you got to, to where you are now. Well, I've always, for as long as I can remember, I've been passionate about big cats in particular. Uh, in fact, my brother and I had buried a memory box that we dug up many years later that said in it what we wanted to be doing at the then unimaginable age of 30 and mine only had two things in it mine said I want to be studying lions in the Serengeti 
and I want to have a zebra-striped Land Rover. So <laughs> I either wasn't very ambitious, didn't have a long list, but big cats were really, really central. And so when I looked at making this into a career, it was very difficult. And something that's important for other people thinking about this is that at every turn, people would say, but there's no jobs in that. What do you really want to do? I kept thinking there must be some jobs. And I had my eye on the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at Oxford, because that seemed to be one of the very few places that had avenues leading into jobs in it. And I was lucky enough after a zoology degree to go and get an interview there. I was completely panic stricken, um, went and met <laughs> David McDonald, who was one of my icons, yeah. and was really lucky enough to get position within Wild Crew. And that was working with Dr. Laurie Marker out in the Cheetah Conservation Fund in Namibia. So I went out there for six years, had an amazing time, really gave me a huge amount of just insight into what it means to be living alongside large carnivores and the complexities around that. Mm. And then through that, though, I had always had this kind of desire still to get out to East Africa. It was that childhood dream, all those David Attenborough documentaries about the Serengeti. And so at a conference, I met uh, Dr. Sarah Durant, who runs the Serengeti Cheetah Project. And I went out and visited her in Serengeti and fell in love with it. It was just as good in reality. But she actually said, once I'd signed up to do a master's and a PhD with her, she said, you know, we actually have way too many people in the Serengeti. We need people in Ruaha. And I'd never heard of it. You know. okay. So I just headed off on some long southern journey in some ancient Land Rover and <laughs> stopped when I hit a big river. And it was a totally different experience, but it was a fantastic, fantastic one because Ruaha is a spectacular place. Well, it's completely fascinating, um, your your story. And so why Ruaha? What, what's the significance of, of this area? So it was certainly Sarah that had highlighted the fact, and having looked at sort of the map of Africa, and particularly where cheetahs were found in cheetah strongholds, Ruaha really stands out, as it does for lions and other large carnivores, as a place that's hugely important for the species, but was massively understudied and also had very little conservation attention. So it's an area that had one of uh, the big six um, populations of endangered African wild dogs left, one of four big cheetah populations left in East Africa, has one of the biggest lion populations left in the world. And literally there was no dedicated carnivore project down there. There was no dedicated carnivore research happening. And so it was a huge gap in the landscape. And so she sent me down there to do my master's and PhD to start trying to find out particularly about conflict, which we know is a big threat between local people and large carnivores, to see how much conflict was being reported by people living alongside this huge national park and whether that was likely to be having some conservation implications. And the, the data showed that it certainly was. Mm. And to give people an idea, and I think I'm right in thinking, that it's completely unfenced. So people are living side by side with these really large carnivores um, such as lions and, and leopards. So so Amy, how many people live on the fringes of this national park? And so could you paint a little bit of a picture of the area for us? Yeah, so to paint the picture for people, as you've said, it is unfenced. And that's actually one of the real benefits of Tanzanian conservation. They have these huge protected areas which are unfenced. So you don't get these hard boundaries between wildlife land and human land. And you get a much softer edge as that does lead to lots mm. of conflict, but it also enables wildlife to move across these broader landscapes. And so Ruaha National Park was until mm. late last year, the, um, the biggest national park in East Africa. It is half as big again as Serengeti. It's bigger than Kruger. The overall greater landscape that it's in is about 50,000 square kilometres. So a vast, vast landscape. Just under half of that is the national park. And it's wow. surrounded, as you say, by a matrix of different land uses. So you've got game reserves, which are trophy hunting reserves to the north. 
And to the south, you've got village land. And so all of these areas around it have different pressures. But they do add on extra sort of habitat that's really important then for the large carnivores living there. And I think actually a lot of our listeners will remember a previous episode with Antonia Leckie from Lion Landscapes and she alerted us to the plight of the lion and how there are less lion than rhino in Africa. A statistic that I'm sure a lot of people found incredibly shocking. So in Ruaha itself, um, how, how many lions are there? What, what are we talking? Well, the numbers are really hard to estimate. When we've looked in the last year, we started mapping out all the remaining lion populations in Africa, you know, asking all the experts what they thought. And these are often just guesstimates because we haven't had the time, as I mentioned, in Ruaha. And the effort there to do all of this work on the ground, it's very, very hard with large ranging carnivores to actually get accurate numbers. But the best estimate that we have is that across Africa, we've got somewhere between or somewhere around 22,500 lions. That's our best guess at the moment. Now, as you say, that is less than rhinos left in Africa now. And when people think about threatened species, they think about elephants, they think about gorillas, rhinos. And when you say to them, there are 14 times fewer lions now than either elephants or gorillas. It's horrifying to people because we don't hear this. And they seem so iconic. They seem so ubiquitous. But so there are yeah. more worrying than the number of lions left is the fact there are only five populations left they have at least a thousand animals. And the Rungwa Ruaha complex is one of those. We think that probably within the sort of the national park and the immediate surroundings, there are somewhere around 800 lions. And that makes it a very significant population, given that a huge number of the remaining wild African lion populations have fewer than 100 and often fewer than 50 lions left. So we have to focus on these big ones to ensure that they are secure going forward. Okay, and, and moving on to Ruaha Carnival Project, could you tell us what your mission is? Um, and actually, for our listeners at home, I, I should make this clear, you you are completely the founder of this incredible project. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I'd done my master's and my PhD, and that showed there that lots of people said, and you asked how many people live along around there, we deal with about 24 villages to the south yeah. of the park that's we're just over 40,000 people, and these are desperately poor villages. We had gone around and surveyed a lot of them, and they'd said, look, we really dislike these animals, but we don't kill them. And I thought that just seems very unlikely. Mm-hmm. You're living on less than a dollar a day. You're entirely dependent on your cattle. These animals are posing an existential threat to your livelihood, to your lives, the lives of your children. If I were you, I would be killing. So it seemed really unlikely. And we thought, I yeah. bet there's more conflict going on than, than is being reported. So when we set up the project, the project was set up under a fellowship at Oxford in 2009. And it was just myself and two Tanzanians living under a tree in tiny tents on village land so we could really understand of what was happening and how much conflict and killing was really going on. And a huge amount. It turned out there was a vast amount of killing and at the highest uh, level of um, lion mortality documented in East Africa in modern times. So massive amounts, but completely understandably, because these, you know, these animals weren't benefiting local people. And so that when we started up the project, we realized this intensity of killing. And our mission was really to, to understand the drivers of that killing and to see if we could reduce it. And also to understand more about the dynamics of these large carnivore populations in the greater Oaha landscape so that we could help inform uh, conf- uh, sorry, conservation management mm. plans. So if I'm right, Amy, the project has three main focus points. Research as, as one major area. Um, methods mm. to reduce physical conflict with these large carnivores is also another area and lastly you have a focus on changing how the communities perceive the wildlife and how to make the wildlife worth more alive essentially than dead for the communities so 
So firstly, could you tell us more about the research side yeah. of things? So you're totally right. Those are our three areas. So reducing costs, improving benefits and you know, doing the science that underpins the management. The scientific, the ecological research is probably only about 30% of what we do. So it's very much the smaller amount because we can know all we want about the dynamics of these carnival populations, but we know they're being decimated. So we have to focus on the threats first. But we have some amazing students and they do, to be honest, the vast majority of the ecological work in partnership with local stakeholders like the local guides. So we do a few different programs. We realized very early on that there was very little information on the number and the dynamics of large carnivores in Roaja. So we started working with all the local lodges because they have guides going out every day and driving around. They had all the stuff we didn't have. They had vehicles and time and expertise. So we asked them, instead of us trying to trail around and get these numbers, if they would take out devices. And every time they recorded a large carnivore to take photos of it and take the location information, information about group size. And that's been fantastically important in providing us a baseline understanding of the dynamics, particularly of lion prides around Ruaha. So that's been amazing. Yeah. And we're currently at the moment looking at evaluating all of that and doing um, mark recapture work. So looking at individually identifying those carnivores and seeing how many we have and what population trends are. So that sightings program is a big part of it, but that only obviously then it covers a part of the area where tourists go often. And you really, you don't want to be biased towards that. So we also do quite extensive camera trapping work where we put out camera traps. <clears throat> I'm sure your um, audience knows what they are, but they are uh, you know, cameras put up and they're remotely triggered when an animal moves past. And we put those out in transects across the wider landscape to try and give us some idea of wildlife diversity and relative abundance in different zones. And again, we have amazing PhD students who've been looking at that and are coming up with some really amazing and just fascinating insights into Ruaha wildlife. And then we are looking at now more recently and really excitingly with satellite following some of the lions and spotted hyenas in the landscape. So we get a really good idea of their movement, how they move through these areas. And then when we look at conflict work, we can actually target it in those zones where people and large carnivals are most likely to overlap. Well, absolutely. The papers that are coming out of, of this project are very interesting. And I do urge any of anyone who's listening today to, to have a look if you're interested in learning more about the intricacies of, of these findings. Now, moving on to the second strand of work, and this is all to do with human wildlife conflict. And for me personally, to think of these rural communities living side by side with lions, spotted hyena, etc. I'm sure for most people listening in, if a lion walked through your garden or down the street right next to your children, I'm sure not many of you would be overly happy or comfortable with that. So could you give us an overview of the work you do to to reduce this conflict definitely and i think you completely touch on those points that people are extremely vulnerable to large carnivores here and even when we choose to go on a bushwalk you know on a safari we choose to do it these people cannot choose whether or not they interact with wild animals they are going to fetch firewood they're going to fetch water mm. you know they, the children have to walk to school through areas that have lions and hyenas and elephants it's a constant potential threat to them it's a very serious threat so one of the most important things when we sit down with communities and we talk to them about large carnivores, you hear over and over again, of course, the thing they're most worried about is them attacking either their cattle or themselves and their children. And this is a very real issue, partly because cattle are so important in these pastoralist communities. 
they are not only economically important, but they're also a symbol of cultural prestige, social prestige. So to lose your cattle to a lion is really a huge issue. So we've worked with people extensively. We went yeah. around and we looked at where these attacks were actually happening. And the majority of them are happening in poorly constructed livestock enclosures at night. So then we worked with the people. We put in a, a predator-proof um, enclosure sort of reinforcing. So we used this six-foot-high wire. It looks rubbish. You know, if you went to a zoo and that was the lion enclosure, you would leave fairly quickly. But it's actually very effective at, at stopping carnivores going in because the cattle start to make enough noise that someone comes out and is aware of the fact there's a carnivore and it gets chased away. So, so they're actually very, very effective. And that's been hugely important in reducing attacks. But what we didn't want to do was just reduce attacks and delay them by 12 hours. And so you release the cattle in the morning to a hungrier carnivore. And so for that, we've brought in these specialized Anatolian shepherd guarding dogs that I used to work with in Namibia. And I've been working with uh, for millennia across Europe. And so well, and so it's just you have these dogs that were just amazing dogs to uh, to innately protect livestock. They literally grow up with the sheep or goats. They think they're a sheep or a goat. And if a predator approaches, they obviously alert the, the herder to the fact that there's um, a predator around and they stand their ground. They don't chase it. They don't attack it. Again, it's just alerting them to the fact that we need to move the livestock back or someone needs to chase the predator away as well. And that's been really important. Mm, and so with these dogs, do you have to train them? And where do you source them from? So we brought the first group of 10 dogs in from Namibia and we placed them as puppies. So you do place them as puppies right there with the livestock. And you don't have to train them as such. As you said, this is an innate characteristic of the breed. But you have to have certain um, just oversight, really, making sure that they are bonded to livestock, that they're not having negative behaviours like chasing them or anything. But they are, you know, they are innately attentive and protective. They're very good dogs. Uh, we've only done an initial pilot of them because it was such a new concept locally that we had to take it carefully. One of the issues with it is that the dogs are very big and so they grow very fast. And that's very difficult for rural communities who can't even feed their children to ask them to feed a dog, even if that dog then yeah. is going to protect their livestock. So it's a really challenging time. And we fed the dogs for the first year. And then it was on the households to try and provide the food for them. But there's all kinds of ethical and practical issues about how you manage this kind of um, burden, even though it's useful for the households and they really want to have the dogs. How do we make it possible for them to do it in a way that's that's workable for those families and gets enough protein and nutrients for the dogs? So we're now looking, you know, we're now looking at potentially crossbreeding dogs with village dogs to see if maybe that might make a dog slightly more manageable in terms of size and just the ability to maybe resist local diseases and things. So that's going to be the next stage. Oh, how fascinating. And, and I've also seen a statistic here that there's been approximately a 60% reduction in attacks on livestock since these interventions were put in place. It, it seems like a massive yeah, success. It, it can be very challenging to get these data because each year we end up going to more households to new places. So it's very hard. But the core area that we've worked in since the beginning, we've certainly seen at least a 60% decline in uh, livestock being attacked by carnivores and particularly in those reinforced enclosures. Those are very, very successful at protecting people's livelihoods. Yeah, it, it just seems like a complete success story. And I'm sure it's just the start now, coming on to the last focus point of your work, this is where you, if I'm right, incentivize people to look after the wildlife and you put things in place to enable the local people to view the wildlife as theirs and their investment, I suppose. So please, could you explain a little bit more, more about this? Definitely. As you say, I think the, 
the way to incentivize long-term conservation has to be the people are truly invested in their resource and see it as their resource that benefits them. And we came to this quite slowly in, in Rwanda, and I look back and wish we could have taken shortcuts, but often it's just the evolution of a project. So we started off obviously recognizing that it was never going to be enough just to reduce the costs of having large carnivores around, just to say you've got half as much chance now of having an attack, a devastating attack on your livestock. I always think it's like having a marauding gang of awful burglars going around the neighborhood. And if you say to people, well, here's a burglar alarm, that doesn't actually make people feel much better about having the burglars there. You know, you need to make sure that you go much beyond that. And so when we talked to people and we said, which benefits would you actually really appreciate from wildlife presence? What would be the priorities for you? They came up with the things that many of us would expect, education, healthcare, and veterinary medicine, because they're so reliant on livestock. And so for several years, we really worked with the communities to develop these different programs. We've worked with providing uh, equipment for primary schools in particular. Um, we then funded a secondary school scholarship program because we realized that many children weren't able to go to secondary school and they were trapped in poverty because of this lack of education. Mm -hmm. That was the only time we went against the, um, the local village because they said they didn't want girls to have those scholarships because they didn't believe that girls could, it just wasn't worth educating them because they were going to get married and get pregnant. We said half the scholarships were being set aside for girls and that's actually really changed now. We've seen girls do very well in these scholarship programs and a real investment in it. So we've got now we do school feeding to make sure that children actually attend school and can attain their potential. We've got healthcare programs looking at maternal and neonatal health in particular, investing and working with very closely local doctors, local healthcare clinics and all the authorities around those. Um, and then we've worked with them and again, the veterinary authorities looking at providing veterinary care because people were losing far more livestock to disease than to depredation to, than to attack on uh, livestock by carnivores. And so we were doing all these things for several years. And it was great. We felt happy about it. People would wave at us as we drove past. And we were like, this is great. Yay, we're heroes. And, <laughs> and then, of course, people were still killing the carnivores. Because why wouldn't you? You know, you would take the benefits and reduce the cost at the same time. So we realized the real flaw, and I think this is a major flaw in many conservation approaches, is that people were associating benefits with the project, not the wildlife itself. Simultaneously, we were having camera trapping going on, as we touched on earlier. And people were stealing the camera traps because they didn't feel invested. They were suspicious. And so both of these things were not going exactly as we wanted. We sat down and we had lots of, you know, thought meetings about it. And, and then we ended up thinking, well, rather than us camera tracking and us doing the, uh, the benefit programs, let's take us out of the equation as much as possible. So we gave the camera traps to the local villagers. We asked them to, to find the best people most knowledgeable about wildlife. And those people are trained and employed as community camera trap officers. So they place the camera traps in the best places on village land where they like to get wildlife. And every animal, every picture of every individual animal they get, um, gets a certain number of points depending on how threatened the animal is and how likely it is to cause conflict. So like a dick dick, a tiny antelope will get you a thousand points. Um, a spotted hyena will get you 15,000 points. An African wild dog will get you 20,000 points. And so it was amazing to see. We do this now that every three months we tally up the benefits and those benefits are exchanged for significant amounts of additional healthcare, education, and veterinary benefits. And it's so important because it means people very quickly recognize that if they burn out that hyena den, if they put lots of poison down, if they're constantly snaring, then the whole community uh, loses out in terms of these development benefits. And the community starts to get together and protect the camera traps, the wildlife, and see it as theirs. And we've started to see villagers actually argue about whose wildlife is getting photographed if you put the cameras on a boundary 
and saying, well, they're taking a photo of our impala. That was our impala. And it's just so funny to see that that change. Wow. We've seen women, critically for us, women stand up at a meeting that we weren't even at. And a group of young men were going out on a lion hunt. And the women stood up and they said, you are killing the very thing that is enabling us to give birth safely and educate our children. And we're not having it. And they made the men come back in. They banned all lion and elephant hunting in the village. And while these things, many of these things aren't legal in the way that they happen, you need that community buy-in, that community norm, because that's the only way we're going to stop it. If people recognize the wildlife as theirs and theirs to benefit the community. And you touched on the point there that, that people are going out on online hunts. Now, I think I'm right in saying that this is a very deep-rooted cultural norm and therefore very difficult to stop. So how do you manage this? And is there a way of changing this cultural activity instead of stopping it completely? Now, these are very active, and you're completely right, very deep-seated cultural norms that it was important to kill a lion. It is important to kill a lion, not only to gain prestige, which people often think about when they think of the Maasai killing lions, but critically here, the young men that went out and were killing lions were getting to get rewards of cattle from the rest of the community. So if they killed a lion, they could get up to 20 cattle from the community, and that really was setting them up. They then could get a wife, they could get prestige. And so it was very ingrained in the communities. It was happening extensively. So we reached out to a group called Lion Guardians, who one of my really good friends, Leela, runs it. And I said to her, look, we're having very similar problems that you've dealt with with the Maasai, but with a different tribe and some different dynamics. So Lion Guardians, funded by Panthera, came down. And we all worked together to look at really unpicking with the Barabeg, this tribe that were doing it. You know, what does it mean to be a warrior? What place does lion killing have in this culture? And then because if you really understand those dynamics, it's important. So you can find what is the most appropriate way of replacing it from their point of view. And we said to them, you know, how, what, what do you think? What, you know, help us out here. How on earth are we going to go and try and move on from this? And they said, look, we would like to get cattle. We would like to get wealth. So that's fairly easy. So we ended up employing them as lion defenders, our version of kind of lion guardians, where these young men get employed. So they get money every month which they can use to buy cattle, but critically, they're employed as traditional warriors. So it replaces that sense of identity as a warrior. It means that they are being brave. They go out and they look for signs of lions. They chase them away from people's households. They find lost children in the bush. They end up being the people that the community relies on, and that is what it means to be a warrior. So it was very important to enable that. But then when we said to them, look, there's something about the status of killing lions that we thought we would never be able to replace because it's so primal that the, you know, the bravery and the strength involved with killing a lion as they saw it. And they said, look, the thing we would really like more than that is to be able to read and write, because that's what gives you strength and, and ability in these situations. And so now we've trained them all yeah. to read and write. Uh, they travel every year. They, um, they, are just, they know how to use radio telemetry, GPSs. They become the guys in the community that people go to, and that's what they wanted. So they have the wealth, they have the prestige, and it is a very, you know, it's not perfect in any way. All these community problems, uh, programs, endlessly need adaptation but but it's really important for them to see there is a different way of achieving that through conservation rather than lion killing okay i mean it's a completely fascinating project and a really different slant on the traditional conservation models yeah it's fantastic to hear about it and it also doesn't stop there because I've also seen that you do DVD nights where you show things like the David Attenborough documentaries that us in the Western world have, have really grown to love. And I understand that showing these documentaries, um, the aim is to try and show the positive side of wildlife because 
as you've mentioned, most of their experiences are maybe based on fear or, or negativity. So, so yeah, what is the impact of showing this, this footage to the local people? Absolutely. As you say, the vast majority of interactions with these species are mm. negative. Um, people do still say they want them around, but critically, they all want them around more than 30 kilometres away from where they live. And that's what we all want. <laughs> so how do we get people to want to have lions and other large carnivores living within mm. 30 kilometres, right in your own backyard? when you don't even have the protections that we have in our houses against these kinds of things. So really important that, as you say, we get people to think more broadly and, and get, see a different perspective to wildlife. So all these people we were dealing with were living within 30 kilometres of the biggest national park in East Africa at the time. And none of them had ever gone in because you need a car, you need money, you need access to all these resources. And so they only had, they had quite a hostile relationship with the park. If they went close, they were often viewed as poachers or illegally grazing or whatever. So there was an antagonism there. So we do extensive park trips where every week we're taking people into the park. And just the fascination and the wonder when you see people watching an elephant with their mm. calf or a lion playing with their cubs. And they say, wow, you know, the thing we hear over and over again is I didn't know these species could be gentle. And it's so hard to measure and so hard to to really write up even, but you can see the difference it's making on a very tangible level that people are gaining a different kind of empathy into these species. And then they come back and they talk about it. They meet with the park rangers, they talk about what the park does. That's all hugely important. We also go into the very remote areas of the village land. And as you say, we do these DVD nights. So we show wildlife films, we put up a white sheet, we bring a generator, we show wildlife films. And that's hugely inspirational. People will walk for miles to come and see these films because they never get to yeah. see it. And, but then, while doing that, we realised that, yes, you, you mentioned yeah. David Attenborough and all the lots of films of David Attenborough yeah. ones. Or, and they're really inspirational, but they are all in right. English. And the, the very strong uh, message from that is that this is not for you. This is not your story. This is not your wildlife, even if it's talking about African wildlife. And we were watching a story about, you know, threatened lions or a film about threatened lions. And I was thinking, this is madness. This is written for a Western audience. The people who decide if these are the last of the lions in these areas are going to be these people right here. And so we have worked with an amazing filmmaker, um, John Forster, who came down through National Geographic, and he's helping us put together a local language film that is going to be ask the Barabeg, ask the Maasai, ask the school children to speak about conservation and perspectives from their own experience and viewpoints. And this will be a, a really top quality in terms of production a film that will be shown widely around. And that will really help engage them and tell their stories and show it is their wildlife and their story. And similarly, we just... Uh, wrote a storybook called Dara and the Lion Defender, which tells the story of the project in local languages, using a Barabag little boy as the main protagonist. And it's just such a good way of them communicating. They don't have nice storybooks. They've never been in a storybook. And it's a way of really making them feel this is theirs. It's their narrative. It's their story. And it's theirs to decide what happens with it. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say you're stating the obvious, but you are. <laughs> and, and what I find crazy is that I can see it in I can see it in myself now you know how I used to think that worryingly us in the western world have told people how to live their lives despite being completely removed and with no acknowledgement of where the local people are living and the challenges that they are facing yeah so so moving back onto the scale of the Ruaha carnival project um are you able to expand and, and scale this project up? Um, are there plans to do so? So yeah, so we're trying to expand as much as we can on village land to the south of Ruaha, and we're doing sort of really intensive work in 16 of the 24 villages. We'd like mm. to expand to all of those. 
because clearly there's massive need for similar work elsewhere. I mean, you cannot do this sort of stuff by constantly growing a project, but how you have greater impact is by forming partnerships. And we were getting so frustrated. As you say, a lot of these things are obvious. And we felt that we were reinventing the wheel. Others had faced these similar issues and we were coming up with our solutions, but there must be more knowledge out there. So a group of us, uh, six women actually, who all run lion conservation projects across Africa, were getting so fed up with this. And we decided to come together and share all our knowledge and all our experience and try to also inspire and sort of generate create a network for the next generation of people building these projects. So we yeah. created something called the Pride Lion Conservation Alliance, yeah. which helps us all support each other and hopefully, as we said, build new projects with other people. We just did the first training in Kenya of these African women conservation leadership training. Amazing women in all kinds of species, all kinds of areas, but sharing any of our expertise and knowledge and experience to say, how can we help build you so that we're all starting from a point not at square one under that tree, not knowing what to do. And so we are through that, you know, helping various projects. Our own project is expanding with Lion Landscapes now into the Salu uh, area. So that's the biggest lion population left in the world. And we're working with partners on the ground there, Frankfurt Zoological Society and others, and the Tanzanian authorities to see how we could implement some of what we know in Ruaha down to Salu. And then, as we said, through these bigger networks, scale it up and see how we can share some of these knowledge to implement better conservation elsewhere. Well, Amy, I suppose the future looks challenging, but but bright, let's just say that. Now, the next topic I want to talk to you is about trophy hunting concessions. And you did mention that earlier, that they fringe um, the Ruaha National Park. Now, it's fair to say that as soon as anyone mentions trophy hunting, people get quite understandably, myself included, very passionate and emotive about the topic. So Amy, if you wouldn't mind, firstly, how many trophy hunting concessions are there in the Ruaha area of of Tanzania? Yeah, so the way that it works in Tanzania is that you have these very large, we have hunting blocks, you have it divided up and you have certain concession holders, they will lease these areas for hunting. And yes, well, they're, they're often not the big five where we are because we don't have rhino there. Yeah. But, you know, they're reliant on buffalo and lion and leopard. And it's the sort of thing that, as you say, has become extremely polarised, not even polarised. It's become almost a no-go area to talk about in wildlife yeah. conservation because people hear the word trophy yeah. hunting and they are absolutely disgusted and turned off and horrified. And I can completely, completely understand that. You know, I am a vegetarian. I've spent my entire life trying to stop wildlife killings. And I went into this the first time I went to Africa. The idea of this trophy hunting is is horrifying. But I've realized more and more when I've looked at the realities on the ground, and which is well known, the big threats to these species are predominantly habitat loss, loss of wild prey, and conflict with local people. Those are the big threats. Trophy hunting is not a threat to the to the uh, persistence of any of these species that we hear about. And particularly when we, when Cecil the lion was killed in 2015, he was one of the lions that were studied by wild crew. So we were really at the centre of that storm. And that had a, a sort of a dichotomous effect. It, it raised the awareness of the need for lion conservation, more attention for lions. That was wonderful. But it really demonised trophy hunting in particular. And when you say to people that trophy hunting, much as any of us might hate the idea of hunting an animal for fun, it actually protects more land in Africa than national parks. So we need to be extremely, extremely careful about making sure that if trophy hunting becomes less economically viable through all these campaigns and things, there is an alternative ready that will secure that land for wildlife and for the benefit of local people. 
And unfortunately, at the moment, we don't have those viable alternatives. So the likelihood is that if you take away trophy hunting without having the alternative in place, you will increase snaring, you will increase poisoning, you will increase wildlife conversion, you will depower and um, and harm local communities that were reliant on that. So it ends up being a net negative. It makes it feel nicer for the person who doesn't have to see it on social media. But as you just touched on, should that be what we're basing conservation on? The views and what offends local people, uh, sorry, Westerners? Or should we be asking local people, national governments, how can we support you in your wildlife conservation efforts? And together, maybe come up with models that, you know, that many people agree on that new financial mechanisms, but until we come up with new mechanisms, if we take away trophy hunting, we will be throwing the baby out with the bathwater and making things worse for, for species like lions, not better. Mm, well, you know, it's interesting you say about trophy hunting becoming a no-go area because I've got to admit, a couple of years ago, I would have been completely up in arms about anyone talking about trophy hunting in anything other than a hugely negative light. And whilst I still don't understand why anyone would want to do it, I do now understand the vital importance of these concessions. But what's interesting is it's only by listening to people like yourself who are true experts, not social media warriors, and we get the real facts that the the penny has, has dropped for me. And I'm sure people will say, like I did, why can't these concessions be used for photographic safaris? Well, I think these hunting concessions are often on the land that, you know, is is less accessible. Is that right? Like less aesthetically pleasing? Um, So I think, yes, people always say, but why don't they just, people just go with a camera and do photographic safaris. Photographic safaris, A, you need visible wildlife. You need it to be not full of tetsy flies. You need it to be reasonably close to a nice airport you can fly in from. You also need not to have civil war or any of these other issues. If you look at lion populations where yeah. they're left, a lot of them are extremely challenging situations. You have corruption, you have um, yeah. you have wars, you have poverty, you have all sorts of desperate issues that don't make it that attractive for tourists who tend yeah. to be fairly uh, sort of <laughs> fairly worried about where they go. And also tourism, much as people like to say, you know, this is kind of the panacea. If we look at it, I think there was a study from Tim Bavati that said that. One hunter had the same impact on them, or the same, I think it might have been brought in the revenue, but I have to look at the study, but it's 24,000 other tourists. So maybe it's better if you think of the carbon, you think of the water use, you think of the road opening up, yeah. you have fewer tourists and paying a lot more money. And unfortunately, the way that it seems to work is that trophy hunters yeah. will pay $50,000 to go and shoot a lion, and that may appall people. But unless we have other people willing to invest $50,000 in securing areas like that, I mean, people just need to show that we have other money, other funding streams that are relevant and viable for these areas beyond photographic tourism, as you say, because that is not the answer to everywhere. We need a diverse set of options, maybe carbon financing, maybe pure philanthropy, but we need those in place. We need them viable. And critically, they need to be chosen by the countries and the populations sort of actually utilising that land and not imposed from outside, because those are the people, again, whose voices need to be heard in these discussions and who need to make their decisions. They have protected this wildlife and often done it incredibly well against incredibly challenging circumstances. And it can't be us saying you just can't kill things. Mm. A fascinating issue because when you talk about killing something, trophy hunting a lion, culling an elephant, people hate the idea of killing it. But often the consequence of not doing that is more animals dying. In our area, on village land, where while they have had no economic value, the amount of lion killing was a hundred times higher. 
than it would have been allowed in a trophy hunting area. And often pregnant females, often cubs, that is devastating for a population. So for me, I want to say to someone, look, would you want trophy hunting taken away, even if by doing so, you increase threats to the species? And that's what's going to happen at the moment without the alternatives there. We need to be honest about these discussions and not pretend that taking away culling, taking away trophy hunting is automatically a net positive. It's simply not the case. Yeah, completely. And it's such a divisive topic. And from my point of view, you see this a bit with climate change, for example. People find it so disturbing to talk about that the conversation just shuts down um and and it just becomes yeah there's this no-go area but yes keeping those conversations open and delivering educated well-rounded messages that actually takes into account the complexity of the situation is is of course crucial a hundred percent i think you're completely right we need to we are seeing conservation become more and more polarized in these sorts of topics and i always mm. think it's sad when i discuss with somebody who's virulently say anti-trophy hunting and i think Actually, we have so much in common. You have huge passion for wildlife. You really care about the welfare of these animals. You you care about their persistence. So let's build on what our commonalities are and rather than the very small things about like which strategies we might use in particular areas. So let's try and build as much as possible a consensus that we need these species there. We need those species to benefit local communities. We need local communities to be empowered. We need governments to be supported. All those things we can all presumably agree on. Then you come down to what actually works in different areas. But I think the endless polarization, the demonizing of people. You know, I certainly have been attacked many, many, many times for speaking up about this. And people say, you know, you're just being paid off by trophy hunters, you're doing this, you're doing whatever. I think my passion is reducing overall killing. And we must all surely, surely be able to agree on that. And if we don't agree on that, then we don't have the true benefit of wildlife at heart. And I think it's really, really important that we try to build these bridges and talk openly and engage everyone in the conversation. I will work with trophy hunters, animal rights activists, local communities, governments, whoever, so that we can achieve a shared common goal of a better future for people and wildlife. And the other fact, and do correct me if this isn't the case in Tanzania, but am I right in thinking that these hunting concessions are often profitable? And some say that because they surround the edges of the national parks, it almost creates a buffer and protects the national parks becoming encroached upon. Absolutely. Well, these buffers often, as you say, trophy hunting areas are on the edge of big national parks. Rawa is a classic example, huge, huge game reserves on the edge of national parks. And you'll see people saying we shouldn't have hunting concessions on the mm. edge of national parks because it sucks wildlife out, it does various things like this. Even if mm. that were true, if you take the hunting area away from the edge of that national park, what you will end up with is, say, agriculture, human settlement right on the edge of the park. You will end up with something like Nairobi National Park, you know, where you have a city right up against it. That sort of mechanism is not sustainable if you want wildlife in large landscapes where you need to have wildlife moving between protected areas. You need them to actually benefit people in those um, community lands as well in the wider matrix. So we have to think about rather than just taking something away, you always have to be very cognizant of what will replace it. And if the replacement is not better, then you need to be extremely cautious about taking away what you've already got. Again, some, of course, some very poignant points in, in there. Now, Amy, going back to Ruaha Carnival Project, is there any way that us at home can support your vital work in, in Tanzania? There's all sorts of different ways. And of course, the obvious way that every charity or nonprofit says all the time is obviously supporting the project financially. There are ways if you Google Ruaha Carnival Project, you can donate. We now also are doing a lot of our work uh, in partnership with Lion Landscapes. I know you talked 
uh, to them, yeah. and which is great. Yeah, yeah, we love that. Yeah. So you talk to Antonia there, but so you can either go to, to Lion Landscapes or to our website, which is roahacarnivalproject.com. They were much smarter in having a much easier to uh, pronounce and type uh, name <laughs> than us. <laughs> um, but also I think many people particularly now it's such a difficult time economically for lots of people you know they're struggling might have lost their job and they yeah. still have that passion and my view is always that you can always do something if nothing else raising the awareness of these issues as you've said people don't yeah. realize that particularly for lions how threatened they are and being more nuanced and more understanding and more just aware of what you do people might send you a, a petition saying sign this you know save the lions look at it a bit more critically we talk about the complexities of conservation is it something that's actually been generated from conservation on the ground, grounded in truth and reality and working with local people? Or is it, you know, a big organization trying to, you know, pull on your heartstrings and be more moved? Just be more informed in your engagement because it does matter on social media and other places. And I think just doing, you know, bringing your passion, whatever your passion is, there can be if you're a lawyer and, you know, you can do pro bono work for a conservation organization. If you're an artist and you can do some amazing piece and, donate it to someone to auction off all these things matter you don't have to give money yourself individually but bring your passion bring your enthusiasm because that is the thing that's going to change it going forward it's so nice to hear that skill sets from so many industries can have a positive impact on wildlife conservation yeah, totally agree so Amy, this has been a bit of a whirlwind tour of, of Ruaha Carnival projects and lots of different other topics so before we wrap it up is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to touch on? No, I think I think one of the other things that we just touched on, and I think you've done an amazing job. My God, it's been a yeah, it's been a really comprehensive look at it. But <laughs> we've been really having to look critically now at um, amongst the backdrop of the whole Black Lives Matter movement that's going on across the world, and looking particularly more introspectively at conservation and our role within that. And I think conservation has a particular, particularly dark history in terms of colonialism and imposition and dispossessing local people of their land and their rights so that we can go and we can have these areas originally to hunt in now to go and have nice safaris in and i think we do need to all listen to these these calls for like more justice more equality and think how can we also individually take steps towards doing that how can we look at making ourselves not just make sure we're not racist but how we're anti-racist and how we're actually helping people you know improve their outlooks here and i think in conservation in particular beyond just our individual organizations which have to be looked at but making sure that we don't and we touched on this before don't impose western views on african countries that we enable and we support african countries to do their conservation because they have done such a good job compared to say here in the uk where we wouldn't be able to put up with large carnivores where we don't even want lynx or wolves back here and we have to really respect those people as equals and hear their voices and make sure they're empowered in these discussions going forward I couldn't agree more and I do very much want to thank you for this crucial insight into these complex topics. It's uncomfortable for some but we're not living in a world where environmental issues are comfortable. We do have to face the reality that we have got ourselves in as a human race and we need to keep opening our minds and listening to the people who quite frankly know what they're talking about and we need to keep listening to, to experts like yourself and keep the conversation constructive so we can all move towards the goal that we all have and, and that is ultimately to protect these species and, and wild areas so yes thank you so much for this insight it, it is so valuable definitely i think 
it's important to have these avenues. It's, you know, it's kudos to you to be able to open it up to the more difficult conversations. And I think it's important that people discuss these and people think about conservation. It's, it's sometimes shown as a simplistic narrative. You know, animals are doing badly and we're always making it worse. We can make it better, but we have to yeah. just look at it in the real complexity and be open-minded. And I think being open-minded in life is always a good thing and something we really need to do more of in conservation. I think it's been wonderful for us, for me to be on here talking about, you know, the work of the project and certainly just recognising this is absolutely not just my work. It's been obviously a decade of work of a huge team of amazing, amazing people on the ground and incredible Tanzanians, everything from the authorities uh, helping us to all of our supporters around the world that have really, really been part of this with us. So it's, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be on here. So yeah, thank you very much for the time. Oh, well, thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the show today. And uh, yeah, a massive thank you to not only yourself, but the entire team at um, Ruaha Carnival Project. What amazing work you guys do to, uh, to preserve this wilderness area. So thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. You've listened to this wildlife podcast. Now, I want to take this opportunity to tell you all about how you can win an awesome brand new trail camera. Now, if you're not familiar with a trail camera, they are a brilliant piece of kit that you can attach to a tree or a fence. And it's a fantastic way to see what passes by during the night and the day when humans aren't around. Of course, the important bit is how to enter. So we need you to head over to iTunes and leave us a written review and also give us as many stars as you feel like giving. On the 16th of September, we will be using a random number generator to choose a wonderful person that has so kindly left us a review. We will then be announcing the winner and ask you to get in contact with us via our email so we can organise shipping and get your awesome trail camera to you. Now, the majority of our listeners do listen via iTunes, but I also know there are hundreds of you that listen on other platforms. Now, you have two options. You can download iTunes onto a laptop and, and leave a review that way. Or you can wait for a couple of months because we will be launching another competition specifically aimed at non-iTunes listeners. Now, guys, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. As you all know, and I've said it before, our main aim is to give a voice to those who are dedicating their lives, like we've just heard, Amy Dickman, to save these incredible species and wilderness areas. Therefore, we need to get this wildlife podcast known to as many people as possible. And that's where the reviews and the ratings come in. The more of these we get, the wider our reach. And that means so many more people can be entertained and heartened and educated and go on to support the likes of Saving the Survivors with Dr. Johan Marais or Helping Rhinos or Lion Landscapes or Ruaha Carnival Pro Project or Chip and Belly Education Trust and all of those other organisations and individuals that we have grown to love. 
so before I blow a gasket by just being so passionate about this, <laughs> that is all from me. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. And for more details about the competition, head over to our social media page. So either Facebook or Instagram, and that will have all of the details on there to remind you about how you can enter this competition. Overall, thank you so much for your support. And remember, we're here to bring the wild to you.